Heavenly Father, we've heard your word read. Please now, as we examine it, speak to us by your Spirit, that we might know you more. And as the words of Asaph there, we might tell of all your deeds, because we know your goodness, your strength. Amen. My parents, uh, they used to say to me things like this, the truth always pays, Andrew. You say Andrew when they were telling me off, but you know, the truth always pays, but it doesn't, does it? They used to say, cheats never prosper, when I was thinking about, you know, playing sport and so on. But they do, don't they? There are enormous dividends, aren't there, for the unscrupulous in the world. You think of the immoral, the uh, unethical, the unfair people. They don't always get caught, do they? Very often they have more than us and they love to let us know about what they have got. Their their arrogance grates against us. and We're quite repulsed by it at some points. But the thing is, we still want what they have got. So uh, I guess the question, the big question of this psalm is... Why bother? Why bother following God? Why bother with God at all? Why bother? Because life is distance from God, not following his ways, it seems far more profitable, doesn't it? Far more satisfying, even far more fun. Remove God from the equation, life's great. And Asaph's kind of tentative statement at the beginning of this psalm may resonate with some of us. Look at verse 1 if you can, just for a second. Surely God is good to Israel, he says, to those who are pure in heart, those who have trusted him, followed him, obeyed him. Now you may be able to say today, oh, I I would say God is good. God is seemingly good. But as you look around at those who live for themselves, who do not know God, you begin to wonder, don't you, why why am I bothering? Why am I bothering with God and, and all this in his word? They seem to have it better, those other folks, don't they? They seem to have all those kind of relationships that I long for. They seem to have the car that I long for. They seem to have the the house or the the job, everything that you long for. And that's Asaph's problem. He's the writer of his psalm, by the way. You can see that in in, in verse naught, you might call it, right at the beginning there. The psalm of Asaph. And it's his problem here. He can say God is good. But he isn't sure, I don't think, that God is worth it. I wonder, is that your problem? Oh, you don't want to say it, do you? But you may feel it. You may even be feeling guilty now for feeling it. Why do you bother with God? And it's the same thought that many of our friends will have. Now, <laughs> What you invite them to church, and uh, you know, especially next week, we think about our objection service there. You, you invite them and they politely decline. And, and they can't see why they should bother with God, this one that you seem to spend so much time on and with. And what good does he bring? What, what benefit is there to the individual for following God, for obeying his word, the Bible? See, God doesn't, it doesn't seem to work for many people in our consumer culture. We live in a time where we, what we do is we kind of pragmatically test everything, whether it's a, a product or a, even a relationship or, or a possession. And if it doesn't fit for that time, what do we do? We chuck it out, don't we? We get rid of it. We move on to the next thing. 
And God is, if you like, being thrown to the dump to be reused and recycled by whoever it seems to fit at that particular time in their life. And to a generation as pragmatic as ours, we want what works, don't we? For us, today. And for many, many out there, many of your friends, they find it all too easy to be able to say, God doesn't work for me at the moment, I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to bother And we even do it, if we're Christians here today, we even do it in aspects of our own lives, don't we? We're happy to follow God here. That's that's okay, that bit. I'm not sure about that bit. Or or that bit. I I don't want to hear God on that. Why bother? Why bother with God at all? And that is Asaph's issue. In a sense, the commentators say it's it's his complaint, verses 1 to 3. Many people type, it's his complaint against God. He knows he ought to say God is good. He kind of blurts it out at the beginning in verse 1. But God feels like a distant spoil sport. And you can see that in the way that he actually addresses God. Look down in verse 1, you'll see he, he uses the word God there in the English translation. Um, he speaks to God and uses the term in, in, in Hebrew there is El. It's kind of a, a faceless God. There's nothing really special about that. He's not referring to God as Lord, as in capitals L-O-R-D, which means the covenant personal relationship God. He's just saying, God, you just feel a bit distant to me at the moment. And so Asaph confesses, really, as in his complaint in verse 2. Look at it. My heart, my, sorry, my, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. God, God he's saying, I'm almost done with you, okay? Uh, I'm not sure I trust your ways in these areas of my life. Not, not in everything. There seems to be more fun if I do things the way everyone else is doing them. I want to go that way. Which leads in verse 3. Look at it. Begins to envy the arrogant. And he sees the prosperity of the wicked and he says, I want some of that. Why bother with God? Well, we're going to dig into this in just a little while. Let me give you a bit of background, a bit of kind of context of where this psalm is, if you like. It comes at the book, sorry, the beginning, as you see in your title there, of book three, third book of five. The Psalms, which are literally songs of God's people, there are 150 altogether. They're divided into five books. Each has kind of certain themes and kind of, uh, kind of major kind of teaching points. And uh, Linda has very helpfully done a, a little summary of, what, of those books. I'm going to ask you. <laughs> I haven't managed to yet. But we're going to put that up, on, hopefully, on the blog. A little time to refine it, so don't panic, Linda. Um, <laughs> But it shows the distinctions between the major teaching points and the major applications of the five books. I won't go into that now in too much detail. But book three is quite a low point, if you like, in the whole of the 150 Psalms. And we're going to look at seven of them So in book three over these summer months. Because I think what they do, wherever we're at, whether we're Christian or not a Christian, they give us a voice. They, they allow us to speak into the reality of our lives. And God is giving us the opportunity to express our emotions and our struggles and our confusions and our longings. They give us a voice to express them before God. The problem is I think we sanitize God so much that we, that we render him actually quite distant and unapproachable. As us have done, as done here. But we long to, don't we? we? We long to give expression to those 
deepest hurts and feelings that we have. If we domesticate God too much, we don't allow ourselves to be able to really express how we we truly feel. God has lovingly given, given us these songs to you and I. Not so we may not, you can try sing them if you like, but so we can speak them and express how we truly feel. And I wonder if this song resonates in your heart as, as much as it has done in mine this week. Let's look at the problem the writer uh, Asaph is facing. As summarized those first couple of verses, he wants to say, God, you're good. But God feels distant. Uh, observation has kind of slipped to envy. And essentially is saying to him, I'm not really sure I should bother with God anymore. He's got quite a low point. There's a problem that Asaph is facing. And on your outlines, you'll see that the first problem is that, the first point is that the problem of injustice, that's what he's feeling. Look down, let's just quickly run through these uh, verses, verses 4, pretty much down to verse 12, really. Look who he envied to begin with. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, free from burdens, not plagued by human ills. The reality is, as he looks out and as we look out, we, we, we realise that money solves a lot of things, doesn't it? It means you can get that kind of nice, the nice body and you can have the best clothes to put on that body. And you know, everything seems to, you have the best shiny bright white teeth because you, know, you can go to the best private dental care and everything seems to fit. Money solves a lot of problems for many people. The wealthy can enjoy so much. And therefore, as he says, that they seem free from burdens that many of us face. We, we, we have choices to make about how we use our money. That's difficult sometimes. The people that Asaph envies, they have everything. As a result, we'll look at verse 6. Pride is their necklace. They like to show it off a bit, don't they? Doesn't really matter how they get their wealth. Look at the end of verse 6 there. They clothe themselves with violence. It might be the cause or the product of the wealth. Both are true. Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Actually, literally, I think the translators have tried to be quite nice to us here. It it literally says their eyes bulge with fat. Their eyes bulge with fat. Uh, Verse 8 and 9, it seems they're arrogant, kind of autocrats in some way. They get their own way in everything, don't they? Look at verse 8 and 9, it's there. And you may know how they've made their money as you look at them and you think, oh dear. You've got people like that, you know. There are people higher up in your offices, in your workplaces, and you know how they've got there. And it, not, it isn't necessarily through kind of pure ability always, is it? And it frustrates you, doesn't it? And it grates against you, and they love to show it off, don't they? As we observe that kind of ill-gotten gain, it's rubbed in our faces. Look at verse 10. It becomes very difficult to live with, to, to observe, doesn't it? Because even in verse 10, you see, they get public approval. They get the promotion, they get the extra money, they, they start getting people around them. Seem to be good people to hang out with. They've got the money. And even, you see, it's, it's 5th century BC or 4th century BC, their culture is as pragmatic as ours, isn't it? People will go with what works. The guy with the promotion, the guy with the Porsche, the guy with the extra money, the 
they go with that guy, don't they? He's the one to hang out with. I mean, you look at the Premiership footballers. Some of them are as ugly as anything, aren't they? But they've always got the nicest people around them. There's beautiful people surrounding, you know, even like Russian oligarchs' children. They, you know, they're all in the clubs of Westminster and everything. They're always photographed, aren't they, by the paparazzi with the most beautiful people. The most beautifully dressed people. Why? Because they've got the money. And it doesn't really matter where they've got it from, however corrupt their money is. People want to be with those kind of guys, don't they? And it's really interesting. Look at the contrast of verse 10 and then verse 11. You see, they, get, they have the public approval, but then look how it's placed. What it's placed beside is really interesting. Verse 11, the apparent feebleness of God. The, 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 these people, like most people will know, that they aren't saying that there isn't any God at all. They're not kind of atheists in that form. They're just saying... Either he doesn't know what's going on or he can't do anything about it. Look at the questions they ask in verse 11. See, these people seem to have everything without God. And so why bother with God? And look how Asaph responds. Verse 12 to 14, he's pretty upset, isn't he? It's difficult. All these people out there, they're they're carefree in their living. Their wealth is increasing all the time. And look at it, he's he's saying, I want that. Just a little bit. It's so unfair. There's injustice out there. Come on, God, why can't you sort it out for me? Can you hear your heart in Asaph? Can you? What sort of God are you? People I know are getting away with it. I'm suffering here. Look at that. I'm, I'm still single. Still struggling to pay my bills. I'm still this. I'm still that. There's a problem of injustice and Asaph is struggling here. Are you? And what can we do? I guess we first need to see where the problem begins. Many of you know, um, I had a bit of a little bit of cancer removed from my skin. Uh, results came back on Friday, all good, all gone, brilliant, praise the Lord. But the purpose of my recent surgery was actually to just get it out, to get right down to the roots of it, you know, the, to, to make sure it's all gone. They need to find the source of the problem. They found it, brilliant, very relieved. But do you look around at those, you know, kind of living carefree, away from God, and and do you begin to envy them? Do you find yourself troubled by the apparent kind of injustice of it all? What's the root of the problem that you're feeling and facing in your heart and your mind? Is it the people themselves? No, I don't don't think so. Is it your circumstances? Do you need to to move to a new place to get a new kind of fresh outlook on life, to experience more? Do Do you need to ignore God and just go and find what they've got? You know, find any kind of relationship. It doesn't matter what God says in his word. I'll just go out and do it. Yeah, that's fine for this, but no. What's the real root of the problem? For Asaph, for you, for me. It's it's the heart. It's our hearts. Look at verse 3 in Asaph's heart here. He envied the arrogant. 
This isn't kind of some objective principle that he's battling with. It's far more personal for him. It's far more subjective. His heart is struggling with envy. It isn't just, I wouldn't mind a speedboat like that. I was struggling with that yesterday. I was down in a coast. My friend has a speedboat. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. And I was like, yeah, I wouldn't mind a speedboat like that. That's not envy though. That's just kind of, yeah, that'd be nice. Envy's deeper than that. Envy says, why should he have that speedboat? Why should he have it? See, what Asaph admits shows that any objective reality around us, you know, whatever anyone else has got, it's compounded by our hearts and how we feel about and how, and how we react to the situations around us. And what Asaph admits shows that any objective reality is just going to be exploded out of proportion if his heart isn't right. Asaph, we don't know about him, but he, he may have everything. He may even have his own speedboat, but it just might not be as good as the other guys. He may have so many things, relationships, possessions. He, he might be in such a good place. But his heart has reacted to circumstances and it leads him to conclude that he not only wants something, he feels he needs it, he deserves it, and he envies anyone who has it. And ultimately, look where it leads him. Look at verse 13. And 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Why bother God? Why do I bother getting up early and reading your your word and praying? Look at what it gets me, he's saying. It's rubbish. Now many commentators um, think that Jesus has in mind Asaph in Psalm 73 when he tells the parable that Rachel read out earlier. That's why I had it read in Luke 15. The parable of the lost son or prodigal son, depending on which translation you look. Do you remember the, the older son in that story? He was embittered, wasn't he? The young son, the lost son, has spent all the inheritance. He'd come back. And what had his father done? Clipped him out? No. He, he'd given him the robe, the ring, the, the sandals, the, the fattened calf, the party, everything. And the older son remained outside the party, bitter, resenting what was going on. And what does his father do? He comes out, just as he does with the son. He comes out. And he says... What does he say? He says, everything I have is yours. Everything. Now, the brilliance of the parables, you you don't know the end. You don't know how the older son reacts. You don't know how he responds to his father's love. But what we do know, the the parallels between Asaph and the older son, is that they're both lost in their self-pity and their self-righteousness. His heart was bitter, Asaph, here. And, and we see that coming out in verse 21 and 22. Just, just go down there. Where my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless. I was a brute beast before you. Verse 22 is so strong there. That brute beast word is used elsewhere. Lots of times in the Bible, it's, in Job, it's of a stupid hippo. Now, that, that's the way it's kind of pictured. John Stock comments on that. It was a great old, um, very posh gentleman from up, up in the centre of London. He's now dead. Brilliant man. 
You imagine him in a very posh uh, English accent. He said, you know, if you harbour bitter thoughts, you should say to yourself, you silly old hippo. <laughs> you silly old hippo. And he says, perhaps we should say it, say it to each other occasionally as well. Some of you guys have so much. And yet some of your prayers are still, I'm concerned about the extension. Concerned about which schools the children go to. Even though they're in some of the best schools in the country. Really, Asaf has two problems to cope with. The injustice that he feels regarding the circumstances of his life. In comparison to others. But perhaps the bigger problem is his heart. It's exacerbating the problem. Now, I guess before we begin to look at the answer to this problem, or certainly the response, we need to make sure that we don't just walk over... We need to examine ourselves, don't we? We will always face this problem of Asaph, this problem of injustice. It's not going to go away. People will rise to fame. People will get the job that you long for, and they'll do it in an inappropriate way. And it will rile you. We cannot do anything about the first problem. We just need to make sure that we don't let our hearts wander into bitterness. So how do we cope? How do you say verse 1 and and really, really mean it and believe it to be true? Look what Asaph does. He puts the problem into perspective. That's our second point. It's a bit shorter, so don't panic. Putting the problem into perspective. You know when you have a problem at work, maybe in a relationship, there's an inclination, I guess, in all of us, what to do? To run. That's what we We just want to get away, don't we? We don't want to deal with it. We just want to run away. Oh, you can avoid the issue, or you can do that very British thing. You brush it under the carpet. There's so much of our stuff under that carpet, isn't there? Does it work? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't get rid of the problem. You don't learn at all. You avoid the pain of learning. Often when I meet guys, yourselves, many others as well, they you know, come for a chat, a bit of a concern on their hearts, a problem. Often I will say something like this, you know, if I were you, what, what would you say to me? Because often we know what we should do as Christians, if we are Christians here today. We know what we should do. We've got a problem. We know what we should do. But yet we avoid the very place we need to go. The very thing we need to hear. We, we, we become like those children. You know, we, you know, I don't want to hear. No. Even though you know the place you should be listening to. As a Christian, you will know that if you truly want to sort things out, you will want to come and to be with God's people, to hear his word read, and for the spirit to work through that word, to transform you, to challenge you. Look at Asaph, it's the first turning of his heart that begins to put his problem into perspective. He turns, his heart turns from self-pity to unable to understand the problem he's faced. And you see that beginning of that turn. Look down at verse 16. What does he do? He turns back to God. He goes, I've got to get to the sanctuary, to the place where I can meet with God and meet with God's people and hear God speak to me. See, similarly, Asaph knows, he, he, he knows where to go, where he'll get an answer to his problem. 
and he stops avoiding the issue. But how does he put the problem into perspective? Well, he begins to see injustice, I guess in its proper time frame in some ways. The problem is that Asaph has been very secular, like many of us. We're just focused on what's around us today. What I can get out of life today, in relationship, in job, in work, money. He's just focused on today. And what he needs to do is cast his eyes forward. He needs to get his chin up, his head up. And view, as it says in verse 17, his final destiny. His final destiny in the horizon of his life. I know a boy called Sam. Comes from Cornwall. And uh, I was at a conference last year, met him for the first time, superbly talented guitarist, played Glastonbury. He walked into this uh, conference I was doing, and uh, his mum, I think, had dragged him there. Pretty kind of like resistant he was. He was resentful, he was pretty bitter. He was the only teenager in his church. It's very lonely. And what happened is, is Sam, self pity had consumed him. And you could see it. You could hardly see his face. His, his hair was sort of over his face. Grumpy teenager kind of stance, you know. And he looked so miserable. But a wonderful thing happened. Uh, much like Asav in verse 16, he went to the right place. Admittedly dragged by his mum. But yeah, some lovely Christian teenagers got around and said, Yo, you, you spend the week with us. Come and join our group and let's study the Bible together. And they did. And it was a lovely thing that happened. He began to see in God's word his final destiny. The glory that awaited him. And I guess as it, with Asaph, he began to understand with that perspective his life and the life of those around him. That he had begun to envy like Asaph. Self-pity began to kind of wilt away as he realised he'd been... He'd been looking just in his own circumstances. Like Asaph, Sam, this talented Cornish lad, began to view those he envied around him in a very different way. He began to see the reality of their lives, but also the reality of his life. He'd spotted Satan's trick. He was consumed by the prosperity of those who had done so well around him. But he'd ignored their final destiny. It's just like in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that with Adam? You know, eat of the fruit. You'll just be like you'll just be like God. Satan kind of tried to trick him. It did. But like Asaph and Sam and I guess many of us, Adam ignored the final destiny of the one who ignored and rejected God's word. See, Asaph now has a new perspective, and he sees the terrifying destiny. Of those he once envied. Look down at verse 18 to 20. And you see this new perspective coming over him there. What do those verses teach us? Well, we must put our problems into perspective. And view things in the light of eternity. They're shocking, aren't they? Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. It's very sobering, isn't it? But it, in a sense, lifts Asav. He, he begins to see his own life and the reality of that and the, the reality of the final destiny that 
awaits him. I remember seeing Sam, this teenage lad, after a week of, of looking to God and seeing what awaited him. And it was lovely. I could actually see his face. He managed to pull his hair off his face. He was about four inches taller. Not in an arrogant way. But just the fact that his eyes were fixed now on Jesus. And his final destiny to come. And not just focused on his circumstances around him. You see how his heart and mind have changed? We see there. Look at it, verse 3. Go back to how... Asaph's heart was there. He envied, but now, verse 20, he pities them. What a change that is. See, when we face God and we begin to understand ourselves properly, but we begin to understand those around us properly as well. Asaph was looking for heaven, if you like, in the wrong place. Lewis puts this brilliantly in and he says, you're grasping at sunbeams, all the, the joys of now, and not the sun. The final destiny that awaits us. See, Asaph, look at him. He wanted, verse 4, he wanted the health of all those people. He wanted the respect of men in verse 10. He wanted the prosperity of them in verse 12. But now he sees what he has. And he has everything in God. Like the father said to the son, the older son in Luke 15, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Look at verse 23. Do you see the parallels? Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. God is saying to Asaph, I'm enough. You have everything with me. Verse 23, you have God's presence. Verse 24, you have God to guide you. Verse 25, he will take you to heaven. The very thing that Asaph had been wishing for. He wanted riches, but verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? See, the riches that we all long for, they won't be with us in heaven. We just have God. Verse 26 Parallel with verse, 20, uh, verse 17, actually. But that little phrase, their final destiny, it's not translated well in our, in our version. But in verse 26, it actually finishes, my portion forever. is that final destiny. Again, it's the same word. My heart and flesh will fail. I've had a good reminder of that recently. And I guess, look in the mirror. It's all failing, isn't it? Some of us more than others, it has to be said. The point is, God is everything we need. Asaph, like many of us, let's conclude, has, has a problem all around him. He sees injustice. Why do they get the relationships? Why have they got that kind of wealth and all of those things? Why not me, God? And the problem is amplified by his very envious heart. But he comes to God. He comes back to his, his word and his people. And he begins to see clearly who he is, who those he envied once are around him. He understands their final destiny and he understands his final destiny. I guess we need to ask ourselves, have we got that kind of perspective? Have we? Why don't you look at just, why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 25 and 26. And just read them and see if you can really mean them. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And on and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Do you really mean that? Verse 27. Those who are far off from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. You see how stupid his thoughts were in verse 3 that he envied those people and he wasn't thinking clearly. Look at verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. How silly his fears of verse 13 that it was all in vain. So is verse 1 right? Is verse 1 right? Surely God is good to Israel. Is God good to his people? You bet he is. Asaph certainly thinks so, doesn't he? God is no longer God. Look at just in the verse end, the end of verse 28. How does he now address God? It's Lord. You're my covenant personal Lord in whom I can take refuge. And how does he respond? And how should we respond? Look at the last phrase. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray that we will do likewise. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.